Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is how we continue to deal with the legacies of empire. <coughs> Today is Thursday the 13th of February and we're going to start this episode with a moment of silence for Sajid Javid. Why is that? He <laughs> <laughs> what was he? What, what was he again? He was Chancellor. 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 Shit. What's he now? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> oh, that's harsh, isn't it? Ma- is Chancellor considered the second highest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's one of the three oh, big offices. Because Home Secretary is the, is the Home Secretary. Well, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary. Listen, you chief. <laughs> I told you. Deutsche Bank don't mean nothing. Deutsche Bank don't mean nothing. You get me? You chief. We are joined by the brilliant John Narayan. Hi, John. Hi, guys. Good to be here. John, give us a little introduction into yourself and your scholarship. Okay, technically a lecturer in European and International Studies at King's College London. Why are you saying technically? Because I'm not sure that I do European and International Studies. But anyway, (laughs) job's a job, take titles how you take them. (laughs) And I essentially work on racial capitalism for the last kind of half a decade. I've been looking at the history of black power in both the US and the UK. And generally, you know, race and class, race, class, gender, all that good stuff that we'll, mm. we'll talk about. Mm. Black Marxism, the history of anti-racism. Mm. So that's kind of what I do. It feels like these subjects are so... Oh, they're always urgent, aren't they? But particularly in the, in the wake of a more recent general election, we're seeing more and more, as you described, native socialism mm. within the UK and... How are we going to unite against this ever-moving, ever-growing in power in, in multiple capitals, like far-right governments and politics across the world? I don't know. I was reading some of your stuff. It reminded me, like, the kind of analytical tools that you that they used in the 60s and 70s provided a framework which they could push back against mm. Western imperialism in general, mm-hmm. against concepts of empire and all these, all those kind of all that oppression mm-hmm. that was kind of bound up in that kind of colonial project. But I find in 2020, though those analytical tools are lacking. Mm. So we approach it very piecemeal. We're pushing against the far right. No, we're pushing against empire. We're, no, we're decolonising the curriculum. All these things which neatly fitted under that banner in the 60s and 70s, which we were doing, seem to have disappeared. So do, can you kind of speak to it as, as why that kind of disappearance and that kind of resurgence now? Well, so we're going to start with a small question, isn't it? Whoa, you get me, you get me. That was thinking larger. (laughs) Well, I should think larger given what you just said. Um, I think the reality is, look, how I pitch myself is, Mm. I work in the field of anti-racism, but I'm probably too much of a Marxist to be seen as a proper Mm anti-racist. And I'm probably too much of an anti-racist to be seen as a proper Marxist, right? Because essentially I'm work within the tradition of what we call black Marxism or the black radical tradition, which we can talk about a bit later. And in a sense, those kind of key building blocks of concepts of a class, race, empire, that's located in that tradition. And what's happened is, as we've moved from, say, the 70s into the kind of noughties, is various bits of the academy, of the political world, of activism, dismantle those larger concepts, not necessarily always for the worse, right? Because sometimes you need to, like, you know, class can be a thing that overrides everything and you've got to kind of go, hold on, how am I included? But in a sense, we've kind of stepped back from that stuff. And, you know, that's why we're all sitting in meetings talking about diversity and inclusion and about culture in universities and universities and these other things because we've stepped back from looking at big things. So, you know, I'll give you an example. In the meeting I was in, someone said, oh, well, you know, 
students struggle to come to the university because from certain backgrounds because like they can't culturally cope with what happens in the university. And this goes on for five, six minutes. And then as the only BME person in the room, I put my hand up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of get that. But don't you think actually the real problem is institutional racism? And then suddenly like everyone's like, oh. Right, and it's all really silent. And they're like, well, John, what, what, what do you mean? I was like, well, maybe the problem isn't the people coming. Maybe it's the institution. Maybe it's the way you teach. Maybe it's the way we are. Maybe it's everything that we, that we see. And I think this is a good microcosm of how things have shifted from looking at large macro things to personal beliefs. I can get trained out of my biases and all this stuff. When reality is, if you don't change macro things, nothing changes, right? But isn't it, this is consistent with the kind of shift away from modernity to postmodern arguments, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of shift down to that kind of relative level. We haven't fully grappled with the kind of legacy of modernity. Mm -hmm. So I think framing it in a kind of Marxist way, in those kind of meta-narratives, but what we're all so concerned about is that in these big meta-narratives, they're kind of, the micro-arguments of, of difference get swept, swept under the carpet, get missed yeah, out. Yeah. So what about me? Yeah, it's yeah, the kind yeah. of argument that kind of gets raised. Because if you focus on meta-narratives, which we've done in the past, people don't get considered. Can you break down what you mean by modernity to post-thinking and what you mean by meta-narratives? Right, so I would necessary. say modernity is kind of the kind of legacy of the Enlightenment, really. So Industrial revolution. Industrial revolution. Things like uh, classic Marxism, mm -hmm. liberalism. Mm -hmm. These are classic meta-narratives that deal with society on a grand scale of how you organise a society and the shift to post-modernity has been the shift from, away from these kind of big narratives to focus on things like Fragmented, difference here yeah. or things of difference tiny little things and it you could argue it falls into kind of re relativism mm -hmm. that it all descends into because you're deconstructing these big narratives mm -hmm. one of these big things about deconstructing or decolonizing the curriculum that's mm -hmm. classic post-modernist post, uh, post argument but you haven't dealt with the actual the grand narrative of colonialism mm -hmm. And its impact of empire, because you haven't dealt with that, how can you deal with kind of minutiae? So, so this is where my work kind of sits, right? So in those two extremes that we're talking about, modernity, post-modernity, my work sits in the middle bit going, there's a whole other tradition that was running in the middle of all of this, dealing with modern conceptions of things, but also deconstructing, but on a global scale. Okay. So that's anti-colonialism, that's third worldism, that's black power, you know, Activists in the 60s and 70s weren't thinking, yeah, I'd just like to change some reading lists. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They weren't thinking about that. Like, how do I get this brother and sister to be read in this class? They were thinking, how do I change the university itself? <laughs> how do I turn this as a base? How does the university function as part of a social revolution? And we undersell ourselves sometimes as people who work in a kind of anti-racist tradition of people who just, like, oppose racists. When our theorists, our community activists, have generated theories and ideas that are actually take those two kind of points, extreme points, and they run with them both. And they say, hold on, in the classic examples, we're left out. But we also don't want to just talk about, like, you know, individual stuff. We want to bring in four-fifths of humanity that Fanon says was left out, right, of modernity. We want to bring them back in and we want to get some justice and some reparation. So I think part of what my work has been doing is to go back to that tradition and kind of say... What does that give us that we've kind of lost? That kind of thing, I think, yeah, that's needed. But I always wonder, why. what's the difference between the activists of the 60s and 70s and now? And I, I think mm -hmm. that it's that urgency, like, the kind of the visceral racism that you see. Mm -hmm. the in the, and the idea that consumerism has made people soft and forget. So because you have, because you've got Sky and 4G, boom, you're <laughs> blessed, right? <laughs> but these things are going on, but it's not <laughs> happening to me. 
Okay. What's really good about John's scholarship, and you'll see this in our episode notes, particularly John's article in the Sociological Review <coughs> about black British power, is that, and obviously you talk about, and I think we'll talk about this later in the episode, about political blackness. Mm. Oh, no. We do, won't go do, in, do we... in it, but like I think what you do really well is you don't paint the 60s and 70s as some kind of utopia. No. And, like, you do talk about, like, that moment and that type of political organising <coughs> between Caribbean and Asian communities mm -hmm. predominantly as something which took on the state and imperialism and mm -hmm. all these, like, materialist struggles, but equally had their own internal conflicts. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what makes people a little bit switch off to that sort of activism, and I don't, I don't class myself in that necessarily in that camp, but I understand why mm -hmm. they do sometimes think that people that talk about Black British power or political blackness somehow are painting it in this romanticised way. Mm. And it's actually, if you pay attention, and particularly, I think your article does this really well, that's not what being said. No, that was one of the reasons I wrote the piece, actually, if we can dive into that, is well, and I'll come back to your point, Tito, is one of the reasons I wrote that piece is because I just... I've never known a concept that can turn a room of people who generally agree about most things into hating each other quicker. So if you just go into a, like an anti-racist film, it's called Black or Blackness. Just say it at the back. And watch, just like people just rah! Yeah. Right, claws out, da 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 You don't like me, I don't like you. And why are you all in the effing room together? Mm. Right? Mm. And you know, it's a debate, it's, you get the same debate around solidarity. Like, why am I in solidarity with you? Your community hates me. Yeah, but that's not the people sitting in the room. Mm. Right? Most of the people sitting in the room are with you. Mm. Otherwise they wouldn't be here. Mm. Right, not that we don't have things to talk about, and and you know what's really why well, I wrote it from a point of extraction. So I don't really sit in any of these big groups. I appear South Asian, but my people are South Asian origin. But we, you know, my people are from the Fiji Islands. Their ancestors are indentured labourers. Mm. I have a first name that befuddles white people. They don't know what to do when they say John. Right, I turn up like, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on with you? What's going? You get it? And I grew up like, so I grew up like, I grew up, I was born in the mid 80s, right? And everyone forgets that this country was institutionally racist, it's still institutionally racist, but it was a lot more racist. Yeah, yeah. And I grew up in Wolverhampton where, you know, we don't have no nice parts, everywhere's poor. I just remember people going, What's your real name? I say, John. And they say, Well, what's your, what's your, what's your, what's your, what's your what, what is your real name? And I'd be, and I'd be small, right? Like five, six, and I'd be like, Oh, my middle name is Christopher. And this would just really, really get them. They'd be like, nah, nah, well, what's your real name? And I'd say, well, my last name is Narayan. They'd be like, ah, I got you. Hey. Right? Because they don't understand colonization and any of that stuff. So I talk at it from like someone who doesn't really sit in these camps. Like mm. subcontinental Asians to me are slightly weird. Mm. Right? Because mm. our experiences are slightly different. Mm. Like, you know, large bits of my family are Christian. Our food's different. Our language is different, like, we don't speak Hindi, we speak something called Hindustani because Hindi wasn't codified when we, people left India. Always grown up with Afro-Caribbean communities, but again, always been slightly disattached. So it was quite easy for me to look at it and go, okay, I've not really got that much skin in the game other than solidarity, because I'm not, I'm not welded to the mm. communities in that sense, right? Although, mm. you know, if a fascist sees me, I'm a Paki the same way, <laughs> but still. And it was quite easy to just look at it and think, this debate is stupid. Like, this debate of, is it good, is it bad? No, it's a historical moment, it's a historical form of politics, and we can learn from it. Yeah. Yeah? I mean, my adage is to drop the black term, because no, I don't think anyone wants to do that anymore. Anti-imperialism? 
I'm down for that. Solidarity with other groups, down with that. Anti-capitalism, down with that. You don't, not everyone's down with that. Yeah, you come see how many electors don't strike. Um, <laughs> right. No, that's right. <laughs> no, he's, man says he's going to cut. Don't cut that. That's not true. <laughs> don't be cutting that. Thinking about what Tiso said in terms of that moment, yeah, and how. So I feel, I feel what we can, what we can learn from it. I think what we, we can, can learn from that. it is we can bring bits of it back. Mm-hmm. But we need to. I think one of the things that's so visceral about the sixties and seventies is you're literally dealing with people who are literally. Some of them have just got off the boat. Yeah. <laughs> So they know about the experience. But this, oh. this is the thing. They, yeah. they, and this is what I'm saying. That time, yeah, yeah, yeah. that generational thing is different. So when I was reading your piece, the only person I could understand who was radical like that in my life, mm-hmm. in that kind of political community, is my dad, right? Mm-hmm. So I was born in the 70s. And so my dad became a Rastafarian. Very well read in terms of anti-imperialist work. Mm-hmm. Franz Fanon, Richard mm-hmm. the Earth. I remember that being in my house. So that my dad's side of the family living. West London, so mm-hmm. Notting Hill Carnival, the riots, mm-hmm. and they're all very keyed into that. They're very political, mm-hmm. and about you being the best that you can be, and watch out for the man, and all those mm-hmm. kind of things, right? By the time I'm a teenager, I'm like, I'm going to garage rapes. Loud that, <laughs> loud that, loud all that thing, because all my friends are white. We're all having a party. <laughs> no, I can really get in. We're having a party. So that kind of that. Kinda, in that passage of time, and, yeah. and when I did have that kind of reawakening of trying to understand what's happened, that's when I started engaging in works by black authors and understanding that, hang on a minute, this, this narrative that I've been mm-hmm. taught, not, not in school, but in some kind of more informally through TV and, and, uh, and, other, and other forms of media, about the US experience, that's not me, man. Mm. Like, it wasn't until I picked up um, Staying Power by Stephen Fryer that I thought, yeah. Right, like there's Here a, we are. Yeah. yeah. This this is me, man. Part of all minoritized communities that suffer racism, I often find that the people within them fully understand fully understand racism quite well. That that's my experience. I'm gonna part of the academy's fault is we haven't gone out and spread the knowledge enough. Right? So the, the history about anti racist struggle in the UK partly is the state doesn't want us to be taught it doesn't want it to be taught in schools. It doesn't want people to learn about this stuff because Imagine if you were 12, 13, and I started teaching you about new Commonwealth immigration and we were in the ends. Well, you'd be pretty pissed off, wouldn't you? You'd be like, wow, that's pretty fucked up. Like, and it's still not fair. So they don't want you to, they, they honestly don't want you to have that. And part of the thing is that we have to get back into that. But I think it, there is a politicised racial experience now, especially in the last decade or so, where I think young people are very aware of how this stuff works, but it's about how do we create the links to tap into their awareness to facilitate political action, mm-hmm. right? Now, whether that's, you know, Stormzy saying something on a track, we can build off that. We can start... You have to almost take Walter Rodney's idea of the guerrilla intellectual, right? You know what's about that? Like, do not be a traditional intellectual. Go and ground with people outside of this place. And that's part, part of decolonising the university, is decolonising academics' ideas of where you should be talking about what you do. So we have I to put that... I hate that, John. Yeah, yeah. I hate that. <laughs> but I, I love that. Guerrilla, guerrilla intellectuals. <sighs> but, I think, I but I think this is what we always do, right? <coughs> yeah. I think we have a long tradition of doing that, of yeah, building yeah. networks on the outside. Right. So when we start building those guerrilla intellectual yeah. in those spaces outside, sometimes in those spaces, the information there's not the, not the best quality. It's crazy. Yeah, basically. It gets a bit crazy. Yeah. It gets a bit So, like I said, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. my experience was, my experience was, when I've gone that, that 14 man was radicalised. Man was coming home saying to my mum, 
kill white people, kill white people. <laughs> and had books, I had books and all this kind of stuff. Me and my three friends. And when hey. you look back at now, at 14, uh. I, this, listen, I, my mum will tell you right now, this, a friend of the family, I persecuted him for years, trying to say, listen, as a black man, you're a failure. As a failure, as you're a failure. <laughs> no, no, I, so I, I know what, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. So as someone who dabbled, well, not dabbled, has done all of that stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, like when you do public events, I always, like, I always say like academics, you don't do public events. I'm like, like, when you do public events, like the questions are going to be different. Oh God, it's so... And then we're like, what do you mean? And they're like, like some people can ask proper crazy stuff. And you just got to smile and go, yeah, 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 let's talk about that after. <laughs> we, I mean, sometimes when we do public events, and this isn't because there's anything wrong with the public, it's because you create a space where you've got a lot of solidarities, whether mm. it's racialised material, all these different things, and people could get in their feelings because we don't get many of those spaces. I'll give you an example. Me and, um, me and Kehinde Andrews used to run something in Birmingham, which was called... Um, it's called a new centre for contemporary cultural studies because we were playing off the old centre. Mm-hmm. And it was like held in this thing called the Drum, which was like a black and Asian arts venue. Anyway, we used to do these events like on the politics of black hair, like Charlie Hebdo when that happened mm-hmm. and things like that, right? And there used to be one guy who used to come every week and he just used to ask crazy questions. Like, where he would link, like, Donald Trump with, like, pig sacrifice. And, and angels. Oh, and no. yeah. shit, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> what was it in your word? Ronald McDonald's. Listen, listen, I'm swear down. What the fuck's that about? <laughs> no, 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 no. we got to understand, right? Bro, listen, listen, no, listen. <laughs> At 14, I could run that, right? <laughs> when, when you're fully grown, bro, you need to be back five. Listen, don't even read a book. Just Google that shit, bro. No, that's the problem. You're Googling. You'll no, probably listen. find more of it. Yeah, no, listen, don't. If you Google, just get, get, get some... Listen, huh? Go Google Scholar or something. But listen, I don't... When someone says that to me, bro, I can't take them seriously. No, man, it's a big thing. It's like, I mean, on a reality, there's there's a lot of... Re- well, there needs to be more of it. But I know people do research. You know, like, people believe Illuminati stuff. Like, they believe it. They, like, they honestly... Some listen. Some you indigen come up to me and say, "T, listen." I'm like, "What? You know something?" I'm like, "What? What?" Because you know Beyonce. Yeah, she's in. The, I said, "Listen, step away from. Me. Go back over that side of the gym. Don't speak to me. Go back to the other side of the gym." No, she's in. Why are you saying that, bro? Prove it. I can't. So bringing it back. To no, no. Bring... So bringing it back. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that we do need to avoid the discourse of that? You know, lizard people run the planet, mm. and by doing that, we need to get activists, academics, and people who know how. With the, with the correct, not all knowledge is correct and knowledge is contestable. We don't want to be like, you know, our words, uh, the, exactly, wor- the yeah. word of the, word of the I don't actually, I'm agnostic, but you know, the word of any, any kind of religious thing. We need to create those structures and frameworks where essentially we, we don't allow crazy conspiracy theories to take over. Because that's actually part of the reason racism proliferates in large bits of communities. Mm-hmm. It's because large people buy into narratives around conspiracies about who's getting all the housing, who's doing all the drug dealing, who's doing this, who's sleeping with someone's mom. You know, all of this <laughs> stuff. Standard. You know, like... Listen. So we, we need to do more of that. And But the problem is in academia, you don't There's meet... Nice. I told you this one would be funny, didn't I? Did you meet Martin Glynn the other day at Birmingham City? Old school no, Martin Glynn. I wish I had. He's a legend. Yeah. Martin Glynn always told me I should be stand-up. <laughs> well, I thought that was you saying I was a rubbish academic. What the fuck up? But I love Martin. Shout out to Martin. He's an old head. Yeah, we need to be more in that space. The problem with academia is, look, and you guys don't know this because you're up-and-coming PhD students, is 
somewhere in between undergraduate and PhD, you have a love affair with academia where you think, damn, this is great. This is everything I want it to be. And then slowly, like a bad marriage, it just goes wrong, <laughs> right? And suddenly all the illusion drops, all the love drops, and really you end up viscerally hating the institution and the people in it because mm. they... And this is partly why we need to get more academics in it who are politically motivated and want to be and do this stuff. Because if we don't, actually, the guerrilla intellectual as a kind of university lecturer won't, doesn't exist. There are not that many people doing this kind of stuff. And do, and it, but I find, well, like, when I look at academia, <coughs> it reflects society, right? Mm-hmm. So when I worked in the corporate space, it's no different. Mm-hmm. The same hurdles, the same obstacles, are, they're there. Mm-hmm. And the only, the only thing that, like I said before in the podcast, the only thing that gets me is this is supposed to be a space of knowledge and learning, right? So, No, it's so definitely sh- not a space of knowledge and so, learning. Sh- so shouldn't you know better? Like, in the corporate thing, it's all about money. So I can yeah. understand people are looking for shareholder value yeah. and they, they, they play up to diversity just for, uh, kind of, just to make more money. But I'm in this space and everyone's supposed to be so free and learning and, but... It's a place of performance, yeah. And privilege and eliteness and ideological training. It's really not a... I kind of like describe this. I grew up in a kind of poor area. If you had a problem with someone, you'd have a fight, right? Standard. You'd have a standard, standard. fight and then, you know, it escalates. And, and occasionally it escalates too far, especially when you get to... A, once you get past like 14, 15, <laughs> yeah, people start bringing bats, guns, knives, all this stuff. And you, that's what you find in the paper, right? What they don't tell you is, as someone who then, if you ascend into the middle and upper class, is that actually these folk are killing each other more than than people in the working class because they're killing each other's careers. That, right. This is what me and Yusuf were talking about the other day. Yeah. Academia, it's... People will come for is, your mental health. Like, they will. if we had a beef, right, and use a big duty, so, so I would need something, <laughs> right? And I'd probably jump out a bush or something and do it, right? Um, but... I could even get to the point where we could probably, you know, we didn't kill each other. We'd probably like, well, you know, that was a bit stupid. Yeah, just you know, like, have, have I mean, a fight, listen, we're not losing. Just talking it, we talk after, it's you know, done. Whatever, whatever, right? Mm. But, and not, not to not to dispirit the kind of, you know, there is vi- ultra-violence at the lower ends of society, mm. gangs and whatever. But middle-class people kill each other every day in meetings, blocking each other's careers. It's a horrible, like, sometimes I look at academia and I'm like, this is a horrible space. And you, like, you guys fetishize poor people as the worst of the worst. You guys are terrible. Mm. So there's different forms of violences that happen mm. in HE, and that's partly, and then when you get to these discussions around race or class or gender and what, then you suddenly start to realize, oh, hold on, this is not a f- place of free exchange of knowledge. It's actually a really ideologically um, cemented place. And if you're, and if you're, if you're an outlier, it can be quite bewildering. Mm. Um, I think it's really huh? interesting what you said, John, about that stage that where you kind of fall in love with academia mm-hmm. and then um, something happens and you <coughs> fall out of that and that's a product of the institution itself. And I guess one of my concerns has always been and continues to be and one of the reasons why we do this podcast, one of the reasons why we do the stuff we do outside of our studies, it's a certain group of people that always that aren't supported in getting over that falling out of love. So for me, if I hadn't have got economic stability from my partner and then having working opportunities, then there's no way I would have been able to continue on the trajectory towards PhD. So it was a material change in my life which enabled me to re-fall in love with academia. Mm-hmm. So many people don't that have potential just don't get that. Mm-hmm. And it is so... like. 
T, you've been there as well. Like, think of how close it was Standard, to falling like, out of yeah, it. If I didn't get my scholarship, my just left yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah. Just walked away. And, in, like, just imagining how many people that happens to, like, day after day, like, it honestly breaks my heart. And I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not trying to be, like, I'm not trying to fully romanticise academia because other there's other jobs that you can do that are just as fulfilling. But there's lots of people that have got real passion for scholar activism. Yeah, yeah, and they're the people that don't get through. They're the people that don't get through, yeah. And, and we need to do more of getting them through and trying to figure ways of getting them through. Look, as any non-white... Um, and there's a class element to be yes. to this as well, right? You your struggle with the cultural and social capital when you try to get into academia. It's just you don't talk the right way. You know, you, like so for example, my mother-in-law told me she was like every time you and she was an academic, right? She she told me like John it doesn't matter what you do, you can never go wearing what and I would dress smart all the time, right? I've dressed like this since fifteen, and um, have you? yeah, I like you know Aww. I've always looked good. Um, <laughs> She's like, you can never wear that to an interview, but a white man can. And I'd be like, and you go and you see them. I've got to wear like a suit. Mm. Like I've got to wear a suit because if I don't come, like if you don't come certain levels correct, you'll just get chopped off. And these are things we don't understand. Like these, these are cultural markers, the way you speak. It's a bit funny because ever since I started at King's, I've, my code switching has kind of just dropped a little bit. Mm. So I go around calling everyone bro. And some of the staff look at me like. What? 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 I'm not, I'm not your Brother, is he? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and there's one particular one who finds it quite unsettling, so I say it more um, <laughs> every time I see him. So I think like those are the things, but it's then incumbent upon those of us, of those of us who've got in and how have you know links to understand bits of that struggle for us to create networks and just like you guys are doing with the leading root yeah, stuff and stuff, yeah, which yeah. is amazing work, right? We need more of that because if it doesn't change, yeah, we'll just end up with the same. We'll be in the same situation. This goes back to the point of. How do we get into the communities? Well, that's one route. Also, don't want to undersell. There are many people who are not academics, and this is part yes. of what I've been yeah. trying to get at with my research. Activists, community organisers, just people who are just smart. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Who are doing great work. And we need to bring academias... We almost need to take some of the resources from academia. I'm not one of these big, like... I don't think you can decolonise the university. No. I, I, I think all you can do is steal from it. <laughs> 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 right, I, I I'm not I'm not I'm not one for that. I don't think university is gonna be a space yeah, yeah, yeah. where like I mean, look, okay. extract extract a, is a better word than steal. I think Hindu uses yes. that, doesn't it? Extract extract. Why well, I like steal? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like steal because I feel like we're stealing back our own stuff. No, because one of the things is is on, like in public. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm all for it. Decolonize, change your beading list. <clears throat> um, but in reality. What are you changing? If you're not changing the entire institution... This is correct. Then we're not changing anything, right? And so part of my work has been trying trying to f identify to academics, and there's lots of us doing this, that people outside of academia's ideas of being an intellectual, of theorisation, of understanding capital, empire, actually go beyond quite a lot of what's in academia. And you'd be better off going back and reading them. You'd be better off going and talking to them as well, because they probably speak more sense to you than someone doing, like... You know, IR. Bro, this is what I'm saying. I said, why are you going getting research? Just ask my pal. Ask yeah. me. I'll tell you the answer. Standard. And I won't even charge you for it. And you, you get this with, like, issues. I remember, like, um, so my Facebook's a really interesting space. Right. As if you're... Right, John, just on a West Midlands level here, you're from the West Midlands and you've managed to keep Facebook. Yes. 
I have ha I had to delete that about seven years ago because my news feed was just too racist. Full of red, like full, full of like West Midlands based British National Party. Oh really? First. Yeah, massively. I guess. But you're from Bromsgrove, yeah, don't exactly. It? I'm from more Worcestershire. You're from Bromsgrove. But still, like, I live on your train line. Yeah, my, my stop's Kings Norton. Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> more trains now, actually. More trains. More trains. I used to. I wrote to Sajid Javid about it because I was Did going you? back home. No, my train started. It starts in Bromsgrove. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, I I admire that you still got Facebook. So. What? I got a Facebook because I got a kid, didn't it? Um, <laughs> I need to know what you're doing. <laughs> well, no, no, I, I need, need to post my kids. I post my kids because yeah, I got yeah, family yeah. in Fiji. We, mm. you know, and it, yeah, no, to be it's fair. expensive, bro. It is. Mm. No, so, yeah, yeah, you know, like we're all going on the plane. You guys know, like you were going yeah. on a plane to see folks. It's just like you have to mortgage, remortgage your house. Um, and like, they, you know, we came from the farthest point you can come from. It's the Dateline, bro. Like, <laughs> literally, like really at yeah. the end. It's at the end. Of Fiji is like six. So, yeah. Just that to the right of Australia and New Zealand. It's like, not as an adult. It's <laughs> a long time ago, when I was six. <laughs> so yeah, so ignore me. Having Facebook is very, very important for those reasons. So also, I think this is where I came out of. In the 90s, in Wolverhampton, in, in, in the area I grew up in, in the areas I grew up in, everyone was racist, but everyone was, everyone was mixed up. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, like, we were working class white people, brown people, black people, and Lord knows we were racist to each other. But you, everyone from my kind of generation has black, Asian, white friends, or mixed race friends, or mm -hmm. uh, we even had some Chinese people. There, there weren't that many Chinese people in Wolverhampton at the time, but many of us have Chinese friends as well. So that kind of multi... This, this is the difference between Wolverhampton and Birmingham that no one talks about, right? Mm. Wolverhampton's so different to so Birmingham. Well, well yeah, in many yeah, ways, right? Yeah. Um and Birmingham is really one of the most segregated cities I've ever lived in. Which right. no one talks about. It, no one talks about No one talks about it because it's like, it's, it's multiracial. No, it's only multiracial in the centre. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, it's, I, I live now in a white area and I'm literally one of the only few non-white people mm -hmm. around. I live by the chocolate factory. And um, Warmville. Warmville, it's lovely. And I grew, had 25 years in Wolverhampton. I take mm -hmm. this as paradise. Mm -hmm. It's great. <laughs> don't have to walk down the street. Mm -hmm. Don't have to worry about looking someone in the eye. They're all scared of me. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I don't got to worry about nothing. Two seats on the train. Two seats on the train. Oh, that all the time. <laughs> all the time. Um, it's great and I love it. So, you know, I did. I sold out and I'm enjoying myself and I love it and I don't care what anyone says. You're all welcome to come as well. Mm -hmm. Just come. Um, but Birmingham's really segregated. Wolverhampton wasn't segregated. You grew up together. Um, you would have spats and whatever, but it was far more mixed. And so... You knew about that stuff. So on my Facebook, there's these people, these kind of working class brown, black, white people, and then there's these academics. And then you get these funny interchanges if I post something, because sometimes they get into conflict, didn't it? And I remember when Brexit was starting. But that's, yeah. Yeah? But lots of my friends were like, yeah, well, Brexit's racist. End of discussion. And then the academics would be like, well, um, no, I don't think you can say that. Um... And, 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 you know, they, but they would, and some of my friends say heinous things. So the day after Brexit, this, um, I'm not going to name him, but my boy's on Facebook and he goes, oh, well, a Polish woman was racist to me the day after Brexit. And then, then he goes, should have voted the bitch out. <laughs> right. And then you look at it, you think that's shocking. But then he's, he's, he's actually underlined that he didn't vote for Brexit and he understood what Brexit was about. Right. Yeah. Right. Whereas the academics were struggling going, is it race? Is it not? Yeah, it's gendered and it's and it's and it's terrible. But like, 
he understood what it was about. Just like when I, I remember asking my dad before Brexit, I was like, Dad, what, what do you think? And he was like, once they come for the Eastern, after they come for the Eastern Europeans, they'll be coming for us. And I was like, Dad, what, what do you mean? I mean, like, it's about European... He's like, no, no, it's just, it's just about that. He was like, make sure you don't vote for anything else but, but to stay. <laughs> I was like, all right, then. And you got to understand, my dad left school at 16. Yeah. Right? But on the, So I, part of my work is to say, look, there are different forms of knowledge which are created in communities that no one thinks are creating knowledge. And they're doing it all the time. And they're theorising and they're wonderful. And the, the kind of famous people that I look at, like uh, Malcolm X or Huey P. Newton or the British Black Panthers, whether it's Olive Morris or uh, Darkest Howe, all these famous names. The key issue we have in academia is selling it to predominantly white academics as this is knowledge because it doesn't come in like a history of sexuality one, right? It doesn't come in a discipline and punish or a capital volume one. What it comes in is a speech yeah. or it comes in a lecture they gave or something like that. And they don't seem to see that that this is knowledge. But I think yeah. it's I think it's similar to the understanding of ethnography, right? Yeah, yeah. Ethnography is theories, sometimes hard for people to understand. People think theory is Foucault mm-hmm. or Derrida or, or something that's inintelligible and, and just hard to understand. But my lived experience mm-hmm. and is a form of theory. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for people to understand that, especially if they don't live my life or look at my life in that way. Mm-hmm. So for some people, I'm whinging. Some people, I've got a chip on my shoulder. Or whatever it will be. One of the things that I really liked in your Black British Power paper, John, and really spoke to, for me, the current political situation or class-based situation was talking about Olive Morris Mm -hmm. and how she was basically talking about how we needed, as well as having our anti-racist struggle that connected the various communities... African, Asian, Caribbean, mm-hmm. that wasn't complete unless we had, we needed the white working, the working mm. class and white people as well to understand mm. that for them to have freedom and class liberation as well, they had to be looking to the global south and the struggles um, within the empire mm-hmm. and fighting against that in order to improve their conditions within like, everyday life. Yeah, yeah but this is the contentious bits of... I think, radical anti-racist politics today. So there'll be some people who say, well, actually, waiting for white people to wake up is stupid and just leave them, right? And, like, you know, my famous friend says things like that. Um, And we've been arguing about this for decades, Mm. right? Um, I tend to think if you believe in liberation, then you believe in liberation for everybody, even if they don't want liberation, (laughs) right? Because that's solidarity. You know what? People today don't understand solidarity. Solidarity is being there for something or an issue, even when those people don't want you there, <laughs> right? Like, you are there because you understand that that's, that's, a, that's, that's about justice, it's about injustice, and it's about liberation. And I think it's the same thing with class politics is, look at the last election, man. I think when we do the analysis, you're going to find out that the BME vote, which is inherently a working class vote, although there's a lot, you know, some of us have done well, like Sag and mm. Pretty and all them, though. Um... <laughs> But because we've written out the narrative of being working class, no one's really focused on the fact, well, the working class vote is split between people in places like London and places, places outside of London which necessarily are not as diverse and not as black and brown, right? Mm-hmm. So then this becomes like an issue. So Olive Morris and, and everyone else were writing about, well, we've got anti-racist activity and we will oppose racism. And I feel like this sometimes gets left out of anti-racist discourse in sociology, but we must have a fundamental idea of what our struggle is against, which is imperialism and capitalism. 
Because without dealing with those structures, if we'll all will end up doing... And she has a wonderful critique of the anti-Nazi league where she just goes like, it's not enough to just dance around in the streets to reggae and say in black and white, you know. We need to understand these things so that we can make real change. So I feel like that, that legacy of the 70s for me is how class and race and gender are put together in ways that are really, really quite strong and powerful. And they speak to today, because I think, like Tisa says, we're, sometimes we're a little bit lost. Although I would say this, from the kind of radical people you meet in various groups, activist groups, a lot of young people do understand stuff. Like, they're the best. They're, they're the best. Amazing. And I'm like, sometimes look around going like, but, dude, when I was your age, I was playing FIFA. But this is the madness, right? <laughs> but they're super, sometimes they're super keyed in, huh? but they're, they're too keyed in. And then it, 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 they almost overthink themselves and it starts going into the boundaries of con- conspiracy. And then yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. it goes into the boundary of nihilism because it's, it's, <laughs> it's so big, what can I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but it's... it's so when I started looking at the similarities with the far right, mm-hmm. it, it was that they went through a similar process of being disjointed and uh, they understood that they were still firmly based in modernity mm-hmm. with universalist arguments applying to all white people, but also they wanted to localise those struggles, right? So they found a way of looking at the kind of methods used by the anti-racists in the 60s and 70s and adapt them to modern day struggles mm. and they've been quite successful at doing this drawing kind of relevant comparisons to what's happening now mm-hmm. to what's happened then mm-hmm. and then sometimes falsifying arguments yeah. but it's, it, it's they, they looked at there's a similar process going on there yeah but that's the what's that's what's happened to whiteness as a category right yeah. so part of the the british black power article and part of all my work is to try and theorize i don't like the term whiteness i think politically it doesn't work very well because when you say whiteness to white people, they get scared. I mean, on this podcast, I'd say where we try to be clear that we talk about it from a, both a structural and ideological standpoint, yeah. and we do try, we try and reiterate that like constantly. But you're right. No, yeah, no, it doesn't a... matter how many times we reiterate, people see it as an individual. The best thing my pal goes to me, "What's whiteness?" And I'm like, "That's whiteness." Yeah. That's whiteness. <laughs> I was like, "That's it," and he's like, that. "That's it." He's like, "What?" I was like, "Ambivalent." <laughs> he's like. And I said, I said, bro, let me. I said, well, I'm gonna speak to you. And he's like, no, no, what is whiteness? I said, bro, I haven't got long enough, bro. Like, just text it to <laughs> but me. No, I hear you. Don't. So I it's, hear it's you. A, it's a, so I wrote this. I wrote an article once called "The Wages of Whiteness in the Absence of Wages," right? Um, which is about whiteness. Mm. And I was like, oh Jesus, I don't want to get involved. It's a bit like political blackness. There are terms that I just wanted to stay away from, but I ended up writing about. And I think the key thing for me, my work has been trying to articulate what happens to whiteness in a neoliberal. Uh, global economy, right? And so part of the theorization that runs through the, what the British Black Power activists were quite good at was narrating how social democracy is essentially entwined with an idea of whiteness. Because to be white is to inherit these institutions, to have access to these institutions, and to think that these institutions are yours. So things like the NHS, unemployment benefit, um, being able to come in and out of the border, all of these things are yours. And so the imaginary of the left, which is this social democratic moment that we all valorise, right? Mm-hmm. Post-45 Labour government, actually is really racist. Right? When, you, when, you, when you actually go and look at the history of from the 40s into the 70s, that moment that we all want to celebrate and bring back, right, is fully racialised. That, that's the generation of uh, formal and informal collar bars, racist attacks on the streets, racist border controls, new Commonwealth British citizens essentially being told you're not British. 
And so part of my work has been to say, well, what's the big change in the neoliberal era? Is actually the relative, and I don't want to use, it's privilege or wages, whatever you want to call it. Actually, part of what neoliberalism has done is to kind of disattach elements of being, of whether you think the wages of whiteness, that kind of thing that you get from being white in a society is material or psychological. Part of that has been to kind of strip elements of that away. Not reducing people down to the level of, say, the poorest black and brown people, although they're inherently very poor white people across all of, of, of the UK. Um, but to take some of that kind of sheen off it, right? Because actually there's an elite of people who have run away with all the money. And there's no, there's no longer industry to give you a stable job. And there's no longer, you know, a state structure that really wants to give you any kind of universal service. So whiteness itself is... It's not that whiteness isn't privileged anymore, right? And there isn't a structural phenomenon of if you're white, you might end up all right. But once we start bringing class into it, you start to see that white people could be aggrieved about certain things. Not that they're, not that they're more aggrieved than, say, brown or black people, but you could start to see how the far right can go to people, well, you're not done very well for the last 30 years. But, and, and that's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say, but that's a reality. But, yeah. but historically, that's always been the case. Yeah. So if you look at the Chartist movement or mm-hmm. the Peter Lou Massacre, there's always <coughs> a section of the white working class that have been just as disenfranchised, persecuted yeah, yeah. as brown and black people, right? But, but it's trying to, like you said, it's been stripped away and they've kind of been valorised. But this has always been the case. So it's, the far right find their audience quite easy to speak to. The successes of neoliberalism and the elite has been capturing that and saying that yeah, yeah. even though I'm going to strip away all these things mm-hmm. from whiteness, I'm going to tell you yeah. what the problem is. That's why everything is you, Tito. But, but you know what the madness is? It's all of us in the room. That's why. That's why we're like suddenly we, you know, we talk about immigration as a problem, but, but we don't talk about capital as a problem, right? Yeah. This has been like a classic tactic of the elite. So, like I said, Bacon's Rebellion in America did the same thing. So, black, <coughs> uh, disenfranchised black and white people working together, and the elite are thinking there's too many, man. So what mm. do I do? I bring some people on side by saying you're the same. Mm-hmm. And that that classic, that classic tactic of divide and rule is what the British use as a colonial tactic, mm-hmm. saying you're more European or you're more British than that group. In your article, particularly on the Sociological Review, you were trying to write about the impact or the possible direction of Corbynism mm. and how that... that you remember that thing, mo- Corbynism? Remember that, yeah. <laughs> tried to... <laughs> Tried to talk about capital, uh-huh. tried to not play into yeah. these narratives of um, working class and whiteness uh-huh. um, and talk about the multi-ethnic and multi-racial working class. What do we do, right? Two questions. What do we do? This is something that we've returned to like uh-huh. time and time again since the more recent election. What do we do when the red wall... Oh, no, the dreaded red wall. The red wall gets positioned as the heartland of working class Englishness. <laughs> what do we do when <coughs> even our black and brown middle class colleagues are tired of talking about liberation for everyone mm-hmm. when those people within that everyone, quote unquote, don't want to share resources with us even mm-hmm. if it means... Yeah. It, even if it means their material conditions improving I'm not trying to play it's, re, it's such a fine line we try and do this constantly I, I'm no way part of the white working class demonisation thing like I, not at all that's mm-hmm. not my vibe but I feel like we're at this weird moment and I feel like your article speaks to this as well particularly thinking about Olive Morris mm-hmm. Stella Daisy as well who did work mm-hmm. with like, neo, like white skinheads mm-hmm. 
how do we keep everyone on track <laughs> against anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist politics when the divides yeah. within both the middle class and working class down ethnic and racial lines are... We're not doing very well, are we? We're really not doing Them well. Them cleavages are deep. <laughs> They're, They're so deep. deep. They're so deep. And I think, yeah, I think Dan's quote from our general election of reflection really <coughs> rings well. Like, when they say, I don't want to share the NHS with Fatima, yeah, that's when we have to intervene. But mm. how do we... What's the what's the evolution of our language around this stuff that keeps keeps Gavin with me? Yeah. But equally but doesn't Fat- throw Fatima under the bus. Allows you know? Fatima in. Yeah. Because Fatima's auntie is the doctor. Exactly. Um, <laughs> right? So we can extend the quote. Which I've got we've got another little thing coming out. Oh, brilliant. On the NHS and Brexit. Which oh. is about which is about elements of this. It's about elements when's it, of this. When's it, when, do you know well, when reviewer free like gets over themselves, <laughs> <laughs> it should be very soon. <sighs> These are like T cells questions. This is not easy. All right, the first bit is look. The tra- there's two things, right? Let's separate out the the immediate politics from what I think the tradition is of the work that runs through. Look, we can go all the way back to Claudia Jones, to C.L.R. James, all the way through to Olive Morris, Darkest House, Della Dadzi, um, Sivanandan. Jesus, no, we don't read enough Sivanandan. Mm. Um, Gilroy Hall, all of, all of the, that tradition. And not all of them are activist academics. Some of them are academics, but... Um, what is that tradition for? That anti-imperialist, anti-racist, and I would say uh, also anti-patriarchal tradition. Um... That tradition is, a, and I, I talk about this in the article, and I say, and and we'll get to the politics, because this is why I don't think it's always possible to actualise everything. That's a repository of justice. So when you talk, when we started, before we started recording, you talk talking about no borders, and and we want freedom, and we want liberation. That's a repository of justice that will always be there until climate change engulfs the planet, to be honest. <laughs> right? Until that point, it will always be there. Until the end of the world. Until the, the end of the world. Yeah. Until there's people... Teaching people, just telling their kids that, you know, the world is unjust and it's racially encoded. Just like I was told by my parents. Just like you may have been told by someone you know. That will always exist, right? And that's a plethora of knowledge and tradition that exists as a kind of specter outside of politics. And it it talks to us and it says, it says when you get comfortable, it says, well, why are you so comfortable? Because 100 years ago, you wouldn't have been very comfortable, right? Or you could have got on a different boat. Or you didn't get on a boat and now you're stuck somewhere else that's very poor. And I think that repository of justice that demands things, especially of the West, especially of, of those of us trapped up in, in the West, it, 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 should, it will always exist. It exists outside of it. And, it. and that is our kind of first principles. So, you know, I, when we get into discussions about, like, people say to me, well, you know, open borders, John, is stupid. No borders is a stupid thing. Like, why should we, why should we be doing that? And... Um, I say, well, isn't that the ultimate aim? Isn't it? So you, you can't think that it's possible, but we should. that's a principle, right? And then I always go, if you were around during colonial times, you would have been the same person saying the British were fine, right? So that exists to push us. How do you actualise that in politics? Now, that's the key. That's the, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? That's a million-pound question. Um, it looks to me like in the current climate, it's much more difficult than ever before because even elements that... If you look at how Corbynism was narrated, things like internationalism became things of became negative things. Yeah, do you remember when he was on the debate and he talked about climate change and he got booed? I mean, he literally just said a fact, which is 
poor people outside the UK will will, will feel the will feel climate change more than you. That's that is a scientific fact. So and cool. he got booed. Yeah, that was hot. Honestly, that was like... He got booed. He literally got booed for saying brown and black people are going to have it a little bit worse than you. And all of these are the same people that donate every time Comic Relief comes on. Do you know what I mean? So like, And they weren't ready for that. They weren't ready for that. And so we, we have a massive problem where large bits of that repository of justice, when framed, actually speak to uh, Gavin up north, don't like it. Right, and we've got to kind of figure. Well, one of the ways we've got to do this or is Peter to, in Tunbridge. Or Peter in Tunbridge. Yeah. Well, Tom. Yeah. Well, Tunbridge Wells. I want. I'm in a you know mixed race relationship, and I remember walking around and being gawped at, at in Royal Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> Ironically. Let's not get on. I, I, I was down. I was down there to watch a Prince concert, so I don't. I don't know how this all worked. Um, <laughs> you know, like. Um, but part of what and the work I've done on the Black Panthers, I think part of the reason we've lost elements of the Red Wall. But and by the way, did anyone hear that concept before the last election? Never know effing Red Wall. They're, they're, they're good like Listen, that. They frame it London that way. London and Bristol and Liverpool and some of Birmingham, not so yeah. sure now, are heartlands. Yeah, like, I don't know why we. No, no, I mean, like heartlands. there were lots of campaigners out in the West Midlands, and they would go to like Asian areas, and the aunties would turn up at the door and go like, "Why are you here? Yeah, <laughs> somehow would you?" <laughs> Like go 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 over there. Go to Northfield. <laughs> no, don't go to Northfield, man. Northfield's well, one of these try, places where I where I go, and then other brown and black people see me, and they come and like say hello. Do you know what I mean? Like they come and say hello because we're like we're out there. Um, we need to re look. Part of this is the the rebuilding of those communities outside of what are actually the labour heartlands now, which are the cities, mm-hmm. which are heavily BME. Is those infrastructures need to be rebuilt? Because part of what neoliberalism does is it dismantles places of organisation and community. Even if bits of that organisation community were inherently racialized, right? They're not the things we should be valorising, right? So unions and did it. Yeah, we want them, but they were racist things in the 60s and 70s. Let's deal with that. We're still racist. Yes, well, yes. But, but, but we support, the, but we support, we support, we support the them and we're in them. Um, yeah, yeah. And we'd like to take over still. and so Yeah, exactly. But... <laughs> Part of this is incumbent on rebuilding the, the different... And so, like, if you look at what the Black Panther Party was doing, and one of the arguments I've been trying to say about the Black Panther Party is what they were trying to do was rebuild the ideas of community and solidarity as the institutions were failing among, around them. And Huey Newton was theorising that this would get even worse. So you can't organise in a factory anymore because no one had a job. And this happened to the black community first because they were already shunted out of the economy. But his argument was you'd have to do this in white communities. And I think we need to understand that the left as a force cannot just be about four, every four years there being an election, having a good leader that says something, having a manifesto that is very good, although it was, it was more like a plan for government, right? But we need to be in those communities. Now, whether that's the work us four around this table could be doing, maybe, maybe it isn't incumbent on us to do that in those spaces because we're already doing it in spaces where maybe we feel a bit more comfortable. But some people are going to have to start going to these places and explaining, yeah, yeah, Boris Johnson isn't your friend. Now, you you see, this this is the thing. So what I I agree with you, definitely, neoliberalism (coughs) strips working-class communities, especially, like, so East London is predominantly a working-class poor Mm -hmm. area of high immigration, but it is now mad gentrified. Yeah, yeah. And so those communities, those spaces have become so much, so much smaller those spaces for activity, those places to do anything are so highly surveilled. So, for example, my flats is constantly watched by the police. Constantly. Not just any police, the city police. Mm-hmm. So they come in with guns and search places all the time. Sure, sure. So 
the spaces of resistance are becoming smaller. Yeah, yeah. And so when people do speak out, it's noticeable because they're a lone voice and no one wants to be that lone voice. And so... Not in Boris Britain. And then when I speak to my mum, who she ended up working for the local council in the city of London. Mm-hmm. She, she said that she was the first black woman to be on the council in, what, 800 years? It's mad. <laughs> so madness, right? But she said they're so outdated, so yeah. old. So, so they're not even looking to even discuss those issues. Those issues that she joined the council to get aired about the local community don't go any further. No. So it's, it becomes one where, where, where do we start? It's like a chicken and egg. Do we start institutions? Do we start here at the local level? The local level is difficult. Institution level is difficult. So where did we start? We want both. I remember this was the same debate with... Um, there were people on Twitter saying, oh, you can't, you know, Corbynism won't solve everything. And of course it wouldn't. But if... Look at the kind of work you guys would want to do, the kind of work I want to do for justice, liberation. You think it's easier to do it with Boris or Corbyn? Even if I'm a critique... You know, if you read my paper, I'm not the biggest fan of Corbynism. But... We need to. We, we there will become another election moment where we need to get a leader that will give us more space and room to do things, and not flame these things up. But I think part of what has to happen in the in the red wall or the crumbling red wall is bits of those communities need to be rebuilt because neoliberalism, austerity, have really stripped it of all of its all of its all of its kind of spaces and places you could get together. It's about creating that um, that solidarity, but that showing, identifying material similarities as well. Mm. Like, even my working-class friends that are from Bromsgrove think that everyone in London is yeah. rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's insane. Beast. Like, everyone outside thinks everyone in London is rich. It's like, But I do this in my no. class. I do this in my class when I say, like, well, do, do you know the deprivation levels in Islington? And people are like, well, Islington is not deprived. So this is one of the most deprived brothers in London. Mm-hmm. Same with the city of London. Like, yeah. high charge of poverty. And you're just like, and, you know, large bits of that poverty will be, will be BME. Mm. And you're like, well, why is it that you think you accept one narrative over the other narrative? Mm. Who are the real left behinds? Well, we know who the real left behinds are. They happen to be Bengalis, Pakistanis, people travelers. from the, travelers, people from the Afro-Caribbean community. Yeah. But they're never in the narrative of the left behind because most of them vote Labour. Mm-hmm. Right? Most of them don't vote against their natural interest. And even, you could say, not even in their interest because the Labour Party would deport you as well. <laughs> So, so. Standard. Standard. No, but so white, no, but this is where John. You know, you said you don't like you don't like white stuff. But this is where. Like, yeah, why know, is it? Why is it that people of colour, the people that you mentioned, black people, will vote in them? Class, they're more likely to vote in their material interests. Because I still think in these communities, and this is what we'll get back to. You and know. it's not even that white people vote against their material interests. It's that they don't. Like, like lots of most working class people that don't vote. No, they don't vote. <laughs> they don't come out to vote. Um, yeah. I think it's still ingrained from that colonial, that 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 colonial moment of where we turn up. Mm. People were still voting for the Labour Party, even though the Labour Party was literally deporting them. I mean, they're mm. still creating laws and legislations to deprive them of citizenship. It's the lesser of two evils, right? You're gonna vote yeah. for the for that thing that you think has a bit more of a progressive element to it. What? What I guess you don't have, and this is what the Tory party has been trying to do with these brown and black faces, is trying to get more of this vote. Because those of us who have done quite well might start thinking, oh, hold on, my material interest lies with Pretty Patel. Yeah? Or Saj. Or yeah, Saj that's, how, man, that's how they move it. And they copy no, the Americans, they yeah? copy the Americans mad. with that kind of stuff. With, what's her name? Candice Owens and all that nonsense. Candice Owens oh. and... Yeah. I just, I, look, 
it, that that the struggle to deal with what is the look, and we we're all dealing with this, which is social democracy has essentially collapsed. We ended up in a neoliberal era. The problem is we're no longer in a neoliberal era because, and one of the things that is kind of startling about like post austerity Britain is everything you've been sold as what you could do under a neoliberal era you can't do anymore. So you know what did Margaret what was Margaret Thatcher's key kind of policy? Buy your house. Buy your house. Ain't no one buying their house. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> you ain't buying man, your I've, house. Got, I've got there before. All you are using yeah. fucked, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got my house in it. <laughs> I, I was like, I, I, I don't own my house. I, I pay, I pay a mortgage, which I might pay off in like 160 years. My son might, his, his son might pay off, or his daughter, they might pay off. But no, no one's gonna buy a house. Was it stable jobs? Most people do not have stable jobs. Yeah. You have a precarious job. So what are we aspiring? What does what is what I is think post neoliberalism, post austerity Britain selling to the middle and working class? Fuckery. You can survive, man. That's why. No, but I think they're selling yeah, racism. Yeah, no, it's it's selling racism. So this is part of the fuckery, right? You end up with racism. You end up with blaming other people. You end up with all of this stuff, but you're not going to end up with the things they're supposed to give you. Not unless like you go into large debt or any of this stuff. So you're not you're not ending up with. And this is one of the things I've been teaching for the last four or five years and trying to think, well, normally there's a position where everyone in their late 30s, some of them, some of them go rightwards. But I don't know if that's going to happen. Because if you don't actually have any material interests to, to God, what happens to you? You stay pissed off, right? I mean, if I lived in London, I would be uber annoyed. I earn a decent amount of money and I look around going, I can buy a place here. There's a guy paying nearly double what I pay on my mortgage just to have a room. Yeah, yeah. So... I think that's part of where this is going to go. The other part is how do you help really poor parts of of the people who voted against their national uh, their kind of na- uh, yeah interests. How how do we get them to vote for their interests? Look, Boris Johnson is very clever. They've pushed. Uh, they appear that, anyway on one level to be pushing a bit leftwards on the welfare state. They won't do that because that's not going to help their friends. But they say that. And then they turn rightwards on things like immigration and the relationship to Europe, right? The irony of all this, and this is what I was talking about, this stuff don't work without migrants. So if you don't get them from Europe, and you've got to remember, the key pivot, if you go and read the black power activists in the, in the 60s and 70s, they're, they're all, I'm writing a paper about this right now, they're talking about Europe and about Britain entering the European economic community, right? See, people don't know this stuff. Malcolm X talks about the European economic community. Right? Um, and what what they're saying is this is a racist club because it's for white people. And the reason Britain wants to enter into the EEC, not all of this is correct, but let's just deal with the rhetoric, is that they want to they they don't they want to have a different port of where you can get a migrant labour which isn't non-white because they want to stop that and they see that it'll be far better far better to join the European economic community. So all of these uh, black power groups are running left-wing arguments, but then saying, oh, and part of this will be to dismantle our citizenship and deport us. And this really reminds me of what Satnam Verdi says in terms of in order for, cap- for the growth in capital and capitalism, you have to have racism. Yes. And that's what this joining the, the white, white club does. does. Right, and now we've seen a return... But look, one of the ironies of neoliberalism <laughs> will be... Like I told you, you're not going to get your house, you're not going to get this, and you're certainly not going to get your white social order back because in order to for this system to run, you need migrants. And, and this is the madness. Yeah. So so when I look at countries like Poland and Hungary, where yeah. they've got rid of the brown people, all of a sudden, so they've had to create a new spectre again. So George Soros and the anti-Semitism mm. comes back because we need an other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need an other to function against, right? Because because there's, because there's hardly any non-white immigration, yeah. boom, 
And you remember Poles and they, they, they were actually recent white people. They weren't yeah, always exactly. white. Exactly. Right? So I mean, one, of, one of the joys... <laughs> one of the joys of... Constructions of white, yeah. Yeah, that's what I told him. Most of us think that race is a colonial product, right? And so the irony of it is if you take Robinson's work really seriously and you can historically disagree with it, but his basic argument is this. Racism and racialization happens in Europe first. Europeans subdivide themselves first. And the original versions of the proletariat are racialized subjects. So whether it's the British working class, Poles, Slavs. And then they take that stuff that ends up because capitalism isn't the ultimate negation of feudalism. Right. Robinson says Marx is wrong about that. What happens is the racialized feudal order becomes part of capitalism. So racial capitalism isn't there isn't a thing as racial capitalism. He just uses that term because um, it was in South Africa at the time and they were having debates about whether you could, you could have capitalism without racism and all this stuff. But actually, capitalism is racialized. Essentially, capitalism depends on racialization. So someone will always, at some point, be racialized. So who's next in the UK? What's That's after so sick. I love that. I'm going to carry that. I'm going to say it to everyone today. What you can do is turn to other groups and go, it can be you. Yeah, it can, it be, you, can be you, right? Everyone, everyone thinks because you're the black dude in the room that race is just about you, right? Is, I think that's the yeah. fear. I think when people see it, they think, you're right, it could be me, man. Because yeah. we were talking about this earlier. Do you remember when white Europeans started getting like, the, like they were scared of getting deported? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. And do you remember you started sniggering? Because that's that's what you were doing privately. I know a lot of you were doing that out there and listening. I did it myself. I had a little chuckle. You know, like a French or German person goes, "I'm really worried about getting left." And don't be cutting this. Um, <laughs> and you would be like, ha. Ah. Huh? Ah, yeah, now you know. Now you know. And then, then, you, then your politics kicked in. And then you were like, shit, that, I oppose that. That's horrible. That's nasty. Solidarity, right? Because yes. that's what you should be doing, mm-hmm. right? If you were still laughing, you're a terrible human being <laughs> and you should, you should not, you're a racist, right? But basically, this is how this happened. And suddenly you end up with people, perfol- like, I'll give you an example. The day after Brexit, my dad gets on a bus and he goes, and my dad was like 50... He's in his 50s, he goes up to the top of the bus and this, this uh, white guy in Wolverhampton is telling this Polish lady to go back home. This is literally the day after the Brexit referendum. Mm-hmm. So my dad, you know, Mr. I fought the National Front in the 80s and all this nonsense. Now 50-odd, works night shift. Really, you know, shouldn't be doing nothing but just going to work. Tells this dude to, like, go away. Like, says, look, you need to leave. Whatever your stupid, like, referendum's about, leave this lady alone. Dude says, go back to, back to your country, to him. My dad's been here since 1962, right? And so, um, and the lady was like, oh, I never, you know, it's, it's just got so bad in the last few years. And this is how racialization works, right? Some of us are consistently racialized in this country for 40, 50 years. But the category of whiteness, man, like that, that's like um, musical chairs for white people, isn't it? Someone takes away the chair, you get kicked out, you're left out. <laughs> right? so. That is such an important point and a great way to end um thank you so much for joining us john um that was brilliant thank you for listening to surviving society please support the podcast by rating following and subscribing on your preferred podcast platform and please consider supporting the production of the podcast by joining our patreon community 